listening to the voice of Howard Stern. Hello, you rotten little bloodsucker. This is Alice Cooper. Hey, this is Justin from NSYNC. This is Rodney Dangerfield. Uh, hey, baby. Hellisher's the king. Oh. Hi, this is Jack. Just back up from the border for a short visit. You know what I'm talking about, pal? Hi there, and welcome to another edition of The Horse's Mouth. You're in The Horse's Mouth, and my name is John Teague. Um, how are you? been some time it's been some time and don't think that I've been a lazy horse's mouth because I haven't uh I've been uh, I'm trying to compile this this podcast at the moment but it, it it means I have to um to talk to a whole lot of people and and put it together so um it's a slow burn but it's a worthy project so um yeah because uh you know um it's it's a it's a part-time gig (laughs) um anyway no matter where you are in the world out there i hope you are doing well um it is a turbulent time in the world uh amidst you know the rona the riots um you know just it's it's the pressure cookers on um and and for look for the latter i you know a lot of people probably want to punch me in the face, but I think it's it's good. You got to take we've got to take a stand at some point, and and say that we are for humanity, um, and enough's enough. So, so so, yeah, we gotta we gotta forge on with that one. Um, but but fucking hell, I read some heavy shit last night that like it could mean a whole restructuring and, and we know what that looks like. It's, it's wild. But anyway, look, it's out of my control. It's, um, it's, uh, it's in the hands of the people. It's in the hands of the people. Today, um, none, none other than Mick Sowry comes on to, uh, into the horse's mouth um, and I'm so thrilled to have had Mick over and, and had, had a yarn to him. Um, Mick is one of the, the most gracious um and wise people that i know and it's always a pleasure to bump into him whether it's in the car park um in the water down the street you know mix one of those people that just you know warms your heart to see him so mick if you're out there thank you so much for coming and um and if you're listening um stay tuned uh so I've been thinking the other day, right? I've been fortunate to go through this experience of the lockdown, all this shit, living by the ocean, and um, you know, I live there by the ocean because, you know, I, I like to spend time in the ocean, and, and it's been a complex little bit of time um, because everybody likes to spend time in the ocean, and it's everybody's right to spend time in the ocean. But there's been more people spending time in the ocean than normal, which adds to this, you know, fucking weirdness. So, um, and, you know, I'll just find myself every day. I check the wind and, you know, I'm checking the ocean and I'm checking, you know, tides and, and it's, I'm starting to feel like I'm a bit of an, uh, an addict, you know, and, and the ocean's like the dealer, you know. Hey, man, you got what do you got today, man? I get up, what do you got, what do you got? Oh, yeah, it's got a bit of a, yeah, man, I've got a bit of Norwest. You should get your ass down here right now, you know. Tide's going to be low soon. Some good shit going on down here real soon, man. You better get down here. Oh, you're going to miss out. I'm in the fucking car and I'm down there, uh, you know, and I'm looking at maps. Oh, no, yeah, man, I, I don't really have anything for you today but some sour easterlies, but, I mean, you can get in there if you're real desperate. Um but you know, tomorrow I'm gonna have some good shit again, and and there I go. I'm I'm off like the little 
fucking addict that I am. I want that shit. Um, and people wonder, like, you know, like people that don't surf, they're always like, hey, um, so you surfers are so mellow. What's all this bullshit about the tension in the water? And it's like, we're not... F- Surfers aren't mellow. I mean, maybe there's that like old like sixties fucking I'm gonna roll big fatty and and drop some LSD and, and surf into um the endless summer. But uh, you know, I don't know. The, the the new surfer seems to be pretty judgmental and uh and and you know, surfers ind- individually beautiful, collectively fucking nightmare. Um, and, and and so I was thinking I was trying to tell I was thinking I was trying to tell mum because she's like just chill the fuck out and I'm um, thinking what's well, a good analogy it's like maybe it's like driving a car right some days on a beautiful Sunday morning you know you well, fucking who goes Sunday driving anymore that's crap maybe you're just driving any day of the week any time of the day and um and so you're driving and and the sun's out the windows down. You know, warm air in the face, good some good tunes, things are great. And then out of nowhere, some fuckhead just cuts you off. <laughs> and bang, you know, like, look, honestly, depending on your mood, some days you can tolerate it and you just go, oh, look at this, look at this, look at this person, they're in a rush. Obviously, they're in a rush and I'm not in a rush, so that's all good. Be in a rush, see you later. Uh, and then other days... Everyone is cutting you off. You're going fucking nuts. You're screaming at people in traffic. You, you get every red light, um, and, and 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 inevitably you end up losing your shit. And and that's how the only way I can explore or explain like what it's like some days in the ocean. It's beautiful. Like you know, driving your car sometimes is a beautiful experience, but other times, it's fucked. Um, but anyway, inevitably. 90% of the time you get out of the water, you're glad you got in it. Really waffled on there. I hope you enjoy my chat with Mick, and I'll see you on the other side. Adios. Wow. Wait till you hear two hours of crap. A complete and total barfarama. Hi, this is David Bowie. Pretty things are going to hell. Hello. Way, way, way back in the beginning, and I've told this story a few times and various things, but... Um, when I was 1959, 58, something like that, when I was about four or five, four. I got a feeling it was 58. We lived in Adelaide. And um, I walked out of the... I was walking out the front gate with my dad and um, holding his hand. And, like, the gate would have been, you know, a three-foot-high gate and I was lower than the level of the gate. I was, you know, that, that young. And uh, this car went past and was it either went past or parked across the road from me and we were very close to the beach and it was a white Holden station wagon. This is my memory of it, but I've subsequently sort of discovered some things about that car that I... It's a whole story. And uh, it had boards on the top, but I didn't know what they were. And I said, Dad, what are they? And he goes, oh, they're surfboards, little mate. And I went... And in, in my head I'm going... Whatever that is, I want a bit of that. <laughs> you know, I just I, I thought they were jets. There was something. Oh, it just went, whoa, you... those look the coolest things I've ever seen. And so that was kind of tweaked my interest in surfing. The the, the backstory of that was that when um, I was reading about Bob Cooper, who's an American surfer who came here to live back 
back around then. Bob Cooper. Bob Cooper. And he just recently died, actually, and he's sort of the doyen of shaping up on the East Coast. And he, um, he had been doing a trip through South Australia that, at that time from a, a trip from America with some friends and there was a picture in a biography of him and I could I'll, I'll, I'll swear blind that that was the car that I saw. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because everything in the story that I heard about him linked together with the time that I saw that car. And there wouldn't have been many surfers. No, the bugger all. And so were they doing a cactus run? No, they were doing a like cruise around the Australian coast, like local things, and they went to Adelaide and cruised around that mid-coast and the south coast, South Australia. And might have, I don't think they would have even got to cactus because it was pretty unknown then. But um, was um, That was... No. So who was the American... Not the American gentleman that brought the twin fin? No, that was, that was a guy called Bob Hoy, memory serves, and he shapes in Western Australia. And he, he, he does... Um, he still shaping really good five fin guns. So Hoy um, in Margaret River. Yes. Uh, precision equipped. Yeah, that's him. Yeah. Uh, he's made my first custom. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because there's a famous photo that was in tracks of him holding this twin fin, you know, and it was the first one I ever saw. And like tracks came out ostensibly the year I got my first surfboard it was 1970. But I'd, I'd worked all all um, my crisp, that previous Christmas holiday to get get a surfboard. That was it. That was my dream. Bought it at Cup Park Parkview Marine in in uh, Brighton. A Pike seven foot four. Fred. Yeah, yeah. You just triggered my mind. Like that guy. Have you? Did you meet him? Is his name Tom Hoy? Is it Tom? Tom Hoy. That's Tom it. Hoy. Yeah, Tom Hoy. That's it. Yeah. No, I've never met him. When I first finished school, I moved over to the west and went to Margaret River and, yeah, I'd always got second-hand boards until that point. I was working in the pub and I just yeah. saved and saved and he made me my first, it was a 610 round tower because yeah. all the boards I had I couldn't really surf over there. And, uh, yeah, he was a classic. He used to rip the filter of a cigarette off with his thumbnail yeah. and, uh, you know, had that. he was the only American in town really <laughs> and just... Yeah. This would what be twenty years ago? Nineteen ninety five. Oh yeah, go go. Yeah. Yeah. Twenty five years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's cool. And so you got um, that's amazing. That bow that you've just drawn in your mind that is uh, the Cooper from the car that you saw to the story. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the the and I because I'm sort of quite interested in surf history, I um. I just sort of put the two and two together years and years later when I'm going, okay, because that's the earliest memory. But then I went, like, reading this story about him being... He was being interviewed and, and um, I was in Adelaide in 1958, da-da-da, and I'm going, hang on a minute, he's got to have been around where I was, you know, and, and the beaches in Adelaide, I was in Henley Beach, but all of those beaches are known to have stormies, you know, like there's waves on big onshores. They don't get a lot of swell. You have to go about half an hour south, three-quarters of an hour south to the, the Port Nalunga area before you start to get some swell coming in between the strait near uh, Kangaroo Island yeah, down there. Yeah. So, I and oddly enough, it was we moved to Melbourne and years later I went to Adelaide to visit friends and that was 68 and that's when I had my actual first actual surf or surf stood up on a board at Moana Beach and that was like... 
one of those moments, you know, <laughs> and got the worst sunburn I've had in, had in my life to this day. Were your parents there? Yeah, we lived. Oh, well, not then. I'd moved back to see my friends. You yeah. know, like I had my best friend there and I still missed him. And I'd get, went, gone over there four years after we moved to Melbourne. We moved here in 64. And I lived in the bay. You lived, lived across the road from the bay. So I was, you know, snorkeling and swimming and body surfing and paddling and all of that stuff. Yeah. And, um, and then uh, some friends, these guys moved next door to me that were surfers. And that was it. And one of them was 18. So it was like bingo. Suddenly there was a. A route to the coast and that was when we were started heading down there and then I went to uh, that job that I had to make my first board I was going down to Tasmania to buy my first board um, to work on a tin mine for five years I worked on a tin mine every Christmas a tin mine yeah my dad was managing this mine down on the west coast of Tassie yeah so I had all these crazy jobs down there like he'd, he'd just say you do this this year and do that next year so I was did a seismic survey, then I was doing geophysical, um, like preparing slides for microscopes um, and cutting slices of the mineral, the, the tin ores into little thin sections and then grinding it down so that it could be translucent and you could put it under a microscope. The two yeah. thin bits that you squashed yeah, in exactly. between. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I was doing that. Um, I was a powder monkey. Um, which was wandering around with a bag full of gel ignite and a fistful of detonators doing a seismic survey with these two uni students, nearly blowing ourselves up all the time because we'd use them as firecrackers when we got round the edge of the around the corner in the valley and no one could see us and they was just as big a kid as I was. So the detonators <laughs> or the detonators and the jelly you were using? And the jelly we'd yeah, stick right. <laughs> <laughs> And then um, I was... Painted houses, just general labouring. Um, was a night watchman there one Easter with we had a. Whole so this is just out of school, or through yeah, school. Through school. So in yeah, the Christmas like, holidays. Yeah, it was from you know leave, be like 16, 15, 16 through to when I was about twenty two. I'd do it every year. So while I was at uni, I'd go there, and that was my avenue. I'd get a board every year, and I'd go down there to make enough money to get a board. So do you? you um do you ever go back to Tassie? Um, I did. A, I've been once or twice, but haven't been back to Tassie uh, like surfing since '74 um, or something like that. And did you get waves when you were down there? Yeah, like Marawa. Yeah, yeah, that's where we went. I checked out Trial Bay, but that was just this huge foaming mess, um, and uh, and the uh, Pyman River mouth. But um, Marawa's got a lot of great waves around. You know, it's got lighthouse and Mount Cameron and Netley Bay or whatever it's called. It's a long time. <laughs> wow, Mick. Um, so you're surfing Flinders with these guys who are the neighbours. Yeah. Don't you just love it how all these little dots, like this, a very similar thing happened in my life with yeah. people who are older yeah. who influenced and it was, I don't know why, but like so drawn to this aspect of surfing that just seems so like the Wild West Yeah. and I want to. Yeah, well, the surfing. What my draw to the surfing was, the biggest draw I had to it was, um, oddly enough, in 1960 when I saw Waimea Braid on the telly. You know, when we first got a telly, and it was around the time that was being surfed, and I, I, that immediately went, "Wow, that's it! I wanted to do that," and um, and so that was kind of my ambition to ride that, and which I did. In you know few times in the late 80s early 90s and it was like 
there you go, I've done it. You know, it was, and it was, you know, like first time I went out there was about 12, 15 foot. It wasn't that big. Um, so, so hold on, let's, we've jumped the chapter, I feel. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we went from you were saving in Tassie to get a board every summer to why me? There's yeah, got to be. Yeah. But, but, yeah, I know, but it was, but the reason I did the jump because I had to jump backwards to the, you know, not long after holding Dad's hand and seeing the boards, yeah. we got it, you know, TV happened. Like, and we would sit watching the test pattern and all of that. And then, um, and the then, test pattern. Well, that's what you'd do. The test pattern would come up uh, before telly started. You, you'd have a because it only it was only on say from seven a.m. till eleven o'clock at night. So, but before you could turn on the telly and there'd be a test pattern for Channel Seven or Channel Nine or Channel Two. Yeah, it was I just think like I remember a, it was like a circular thing yeah, with the blocks exactly, through it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. and we turn on the telly and just stare at the test pattern. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we're little kids. It's alive. Yeah, exactly. And then wait for it to go. Suddenly, they've come on. So, on the news one night, there was these. You know, they wouldn't call them hell men, but these crazy guys riding by me or Makaha or something like that. And it was like, whoa! And it was that was the whole thing because you know you'd see the guys going straight at Malibu or something, but those giant like you thought, why aren't they dead? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it would look thrilling. Like, I just really just went, oh yeah. And so to actually do that years later, that was literally my thing was trying to ride a bigger wave, you know. And being a Melbourne kid, I was, there was, I was doomed never to be a great surfer. Come because, on, Mick. No, no, seriously. It's just um, but you, you, you're going to be adequate because you can't do it every day. And it's visible the difference between the guys down here on, that surfed on a daily basis. And us guys that would surf on the weekends and get the other jollies on the bay. That was very much the thing. Bay waves? Bay waves, absolutely. Where, where did you surf in the bay? Oh, Mentone mostly. Yeah. Yeah, just my local... My local... <laughs> <laughs> my local clothes out. My local pile of shit. Um, but it was fun, you know, and, and you'd sort of certain days because at school, my school was across the road, so you'd be watching... Suddenly there'd be a change come through, and if the white caps were of a certain size, you'd go. It's on. You know, you couldn't wait to get out and run across the road. And, yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. My first surfing experience was at Mount Martha. Yeah, yeah. Some good waves down there. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, it's all relative. <laughs> yeah, you know? totally. Yeah. Well, as a little kid, you're like, yeah. this is. Ah. <laughs> yeah. But but the bay has got little strange nooks and crannies where Ricketts Point area. There's bits which can comes around the point, and then there's little peely reefs and stuff that actually look like surf. Do you ever have dreams that um, the bay has really good waves? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've got I've got a couple of dreams that are recurring dreams, and they are all based around um, the bay, and and sort of you know it's the bay, but suddenly there's this amazing spot on it, and I know exactly where the spot is, and I've driven past it, and there's no chance it's ever going to have a wave like that's in the dream, yeah. but it's there, you know. I love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's always a left. I've even did, done drivers like hunting waves on the bay as an adult, you know, going up to a really big blow, I'll see what I can find. But the funniest bay story I ever had was, um, you know, the big dust storm in 83? I'll say yes. Yes, OK. Well, in 83, there was a huge dust storm c- came through Melbourne, like one of those outback dust storms. Yeah. And it was like Armageddon and I was working in that agency and the girls were screaming and people like, what the hell's going on? And the whole sky went black and... Armageddon. Oh, it was incredible. And anyway, that blew through. It had been huge winds on the bay. Sunny. Then it suddenly went sunny, like it cleared up. And I'm driving home 
and I, I'm driving home from St Kilda Road down Fitzroy Street and then starting to swing up Beaconsfield Parade towards where I lived in Albert Park. And all along Beaconsfield Parade are A-frames, three-foot A-frames, and it's offshore. And there's guys running across the road with boards all the way along. And that's literally like small beacon all the way along um, Beaconsfield Parade. Like, you know, peel left, right, peel left, right. So I just got up to the top, ran, you know, ran into, threw my weddy on. Was, it was a hot day, but, I, you know, short done or whatever. Out there riding Kerford Road, and these lovely little peelers, and they got smaller and smaller, and I ran back across the road because my mate next door was um, David Rain, James Rain's brother, and he had a longboard. And, I said, and his nickname was Nipper. And I said, Nipper, give me your longboard. And I ran back on and, and rode it, rode it, rode it until it was... Unrideable, like everyone was just going the first offshore day that you've ever seen on the bay. So, what was it an anomaly of the south wind and the north wind meeting yeah, perfectly? Was, no, no, what it was was it, it blew like blazes. There was enough, it wind blew swell. up a decent wind swell and then it suddenly switched offshore and cleaned up. So, suddenly, instead of having, and by the end of it, it started to look like a tiny ground swell because it had evened it out and it was just the last remnant that had come up the 60 or 80 k's of the bay. How good. Yeah, it was fun. It was just weird. And in the 80s? It was, yeah, 83. I was such a fond, like, because I was born in 76, so I was, yeah. you know, from four to, what, ten. Yeah, in that time. Yeah, yeah. And it just, in my mind, holds such a special place. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you know, like four to ten would for me was in on the Adelaide beaches, but doing but similar stuff, you're living in the water and mucking around. Were you surfing then? No, I started at 13. But okay. I was skating. Right. I was like... Where did you live? I'm going to skate till I'm dead. Well, we had a farm in the northeast and we had a, a house at Mount Martha. Yeah. So every holiday was on the beach and the rest of the time was on the farm. Yep. And I fucking hated the farm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like the motorbikes and guns, but yeah. I, I like, you know, my old man and me used to fight about it. Like, I was like, I'm never going to fucking be a farmer. <laughs> I'm going to skate till I'm dead. I used yeah. to skate in the wool shed, yeah. uh, skate on the veranda till I get yelled at. Like, it was all about just skating, you know, and, I just, and surfing in my mind. Like, if I look back at the scrapbooks from those days, yeah. pictures of surfing uh, and you know, sketches of, like, Van's business trip. <laughs> but, yeah, so I was a farm boy with a bit of coastal aspect. And we had friends at Mount Martha and their kids surfed. Yeah. And yeah. they took me... I remember my first time to Winky. They took me to Lawn for a surfing holiday. Yeah. And I remember seeing Winky for the first time. We stopped and I was just like... I remember it was pumping. And I was just... My jaw was on the ground. Never seen anything like it. And it was... The, the, you know, the, gra the hill was grassy yeah, yeah, yeah. and it was just... What year was that? Oh, it must have been... Uh, 89 or 90, at a, at a guess. So 30 years ago. So you were like, what are you now? One th 43 now. Right, so you're 13. Yeah. Yeah, right. Wow. And I just, I was, and there were, I just met, I just, it's, it's burnt in my brain. Yeah, yeah, it would be, yeah. And then we went all the way along the ocean. I'd never been that way down the ocean road. Yeah. I'd always been on the, on other, the side. other side. Well, that was, see, that's, uh, that's really going down Point Leo and all of that, but Bells was the legendary bit. And back when I did it, to get to Bells from where we were, you had to cross um, the Yarra on a ferry. And there was a punt. 
that um, that you'd go to, and there was like a, it was about as enough to take about ten cars, and you'd all get onto that, and then to put 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 across the Yarra, and then get on the other side and continue on. There's no bridge. No. No, the bridge wasn't built yet. So, and the other way you could do it was drive all around Melbourne and through Fitz, uh, Footscray and go down that way, like the old Princess Highway. But the, if you could time the punt, it would took about 20 minutes off the trip, the run around. So you'd go, it was Williamstown. It'd go across to Williamstown. So that was, uh, so a trip that's now an hour and 10 was close to two hours to get to Bells. Right. So you'd tend to go down the other way. Yeah. If you lived on that side of Melbourne. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so going down to Bells and and seeing Bells for the first time and just go, whoa, and, and, and then Winky and probably then sneaking back to small 13th because it was like, whoa, you know. And for me... Um, as, as every young surfer does, trying to figure out bells, how do you, how do you? Because I tended would tend to sit a bit deep or mm-hmm. could never get make it through the bowl, and then suddenly it clicks and you start to enjoy it. But I mean, those waves, it's just that it, it became my great attractive became the west coast, you know, and exploring down the ocean road, and then started to go down. I first surfed Port Campbell area in about 74, 73. Gee, there mustn't have been much happening um, down there. Anyone down there, yeah. Um, and so, when you go down there, would you go down alone, or would you go? I, uh, I, no, I'd go down with some friends. Th- those same friends, uh, they oh, ended yeah. up ditching surfing quite early in the piece. Um, but I, I remember a trip down, and the first time I surfed there was at the left off the uh, in the mouth of, at uh, Port Campbell. Yeah. You know, the left in the and which I really thought was a good wave then. Until I just realised how bad it was, but um, and um, first sighted massacre on that trip. I see that have to have been seventy three. I wasn't. It was offshore. It was only about three foot, but I sort of went, you know, something. I I felt an attraction to whatever that was because you knew that there was a good wave there, um, and then started going there relatively regularly. Probably in the late seventies. And through, and then regularly a lot through the eighties, and continually from then on, until actually we moved here, because I tended to because I was um, just preoccupied with life. Um, I tended just to surf Bells and Winky pretty much solidly since for the last eight nine years. You know, I'll go to Thirteenth and I'll go down south. You know, a few times a year, but not to the same. Particularly in the last four or five years, and. Like, I'd stopped going altogether. Uh, I think the last time I surfed... Well, I've just lately gone down there a bit more, but last time I surfed two miles was about three years ago. So, you know, I'm getting... I, I would like to sort of re-embrace that, but now we've got the new COVID crowd thing and post-COVID madness, so we'll, we'll see. Yeah. Yeah, it's... um. Yeah, it's a different kettle of fish down the coast, isn't it? Well, yeah. Uh, look, I, I've got a mate who's got a place uh, at Peterborough and I've, I've known the crew down there, like the kids that are in the water now, the young hotties are the children that I watched in the shore break in, the, in Port Campbell Bay. You know, I know their mums and dads. Uh, so I, I'm sort of quite a, like an, a relatively familiar face down there, although to the kids... It'll be vaguely maybe I remember him when he was young. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Now, 
Tracing back, how yeah. did you end up? Um, how did you get a, a leg in with the uh, advertising world? What did you go to university? Did you? Oh uh, well, yeah. Look, um, I always, I always could draw, and I always could write. You know, I was good at English and I was good at drawing. They were my things, and um, that sounds a bit weird. And I, I was actually interested in everything that was going. I love science, and I kind of like maths, but. Uh, your life is sort of driven by things that happen in your education and and also maybe the nature of your brain. And I was quite distractible and interested in everything which made it hard for me to decide what I wanted to be. And uh, subsequently, my academic career was less than stellar. Um, So um, I did uh, HSC twice because I was dove off on the day of exams to go for a surf, Um, you know, those sorts of things idiot things that you do then were you partying or just surfing just or just surfing i just yeah. wanted to go for a surf i had you know and it was like um i just didn't know what i wanted to do so i lacked the focus yeah and so i did that twice and it passed fine the second time and i ended up well, i was down on the and i still didn't know what i wanted to do but um i thought i'd apply for industrial design um because it was sort of had a bit of science and a bit of art and um I got into that. Industrial design. Yeah. Yeah. In my mind. Yeah, exactly. What's that mean? Industrial design is um, product design. And, and, um, ah, ah, okay. yeah, so from a shampoo bottle to a. Yeah, to a, to a Aston Martin. Yeah. You know, it's, it's essentially uh, the sort of blending of uh, machinery and art, it's, it's putting form to the function. Um, and I realised sort of two-thirds of the way the first year that it wasn't quite my thing, um, and I switched to graphic design the following year, and I still had that distraction thing going on, um, ended up leaving that in second year and going straight into an ad agency. I just went stuff this, and I, I um, took my folio in, and because I could draw and I could think... I got a job as an illustrator, mainly, um, and um, that turned into being an art director and, and, and that turned into being an art director stroke writer, copywriter, because I liked to write, write the stuff that I was doing and that so turned into a career. Yeah, okay. So um, this, what, where, which decade are we sitting in here? Oh, we're starting it's late 70s. Yeah. Mm. And so you and at a... Advertising telly was relatively new. Is this like was it a newy kind of a? a oh no winner? no no! The, the advertising world was you know Mad well, Men and all of that. Yeah. That was well established, you know, and it had been since the twenties. So it was just an evolving. That whole nineteen sixties advertising was actually that sixties seventies early eighties was the halcyon days of it. It was incredible pay and glamorous and all of that. I, the thing was probably if I'd looked into my heart of hearts, I wouldn't be a painter. Um, because I was intensely interested in art. And um, I skirted around that from then on. I was doing photography for myself and painting for myself all the time. Just just that's my brain works in that way. I'm always drawing or taking pictures or thinking about stuff. And so advertising was the great um, outlet for that in a way because... um, if you're an advertising creative, you have to be able to digest other people's information and turn it into something that people are able to understand. 
and you can do, if you can do that entertainingly in in a short form, thirty seconds, or in a in a press ad where it's an immediate communication, and is that's it written. Is that certain, written? Yeah, in, written and visual. Written and visual. Yeah. yeah. So you're coming up with visual ideas and the words, and you're trying to, you know, ideally create a, a what you'd call a cognitive dissonance between the picture and the word. You don't sort of have, you know, this is a cat and show a cat. You try and put a dog there and say this is a cat, then somebody's going to go, well, what the hell? They'll they'll go, why why is that weird? And they'll read it. You know, it's. It's trying to entertain people and grab their attention amongst a morass of other information. So an entertaining ad, and you know, you all remember good entertaining TV commercials are the ones that stick out, not the other ones that just, you know... Not happy, Jan. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and so it was a fun industry to be in, but at the back of my mind, all through those 30-odd years, was wanting to do something more in the art field. So um, I ended up in 1985 feeling at 50 what was I 51 um no 2005 2005 sorry uh I um with my wife Sue's blessing sort of (laughs) god bless her um sold the house and this was prior to the uh this was like country was booming um, I thought, well, I'll put all the money in the bank and uh, I'll, I'll have enough to live on. I'll do freelance work and I'll work on a film. I wanted, had a film idea that I wanted to see out and, um, and that had been revisiting Evolution 40 years later. Um, and, you know, remember Evolution, the surfing film. And I'd, five years before that, had a, created, struck up a friendship with Nat Young and I'd known Wayne Lynch and for years and years before that from going down the coast and stuff and um, because I knew those guys I felt like I had an in like an insider in into their stories and because surfing had evolved so much in that 40 years since 1935 years I suppose it was um, it was a chance to tell the story and see where surfing had gone so I started I shot interviews with Wayne I shot interviews with Nat went up and shot Paul Widsig um, started to gather information and I was starting to think about how to deal with the music. And um, Can I just ask, what were you shooting on then? I, I just um, beta cam, I think it yeah. was. Um, and uh, not film at this stage. Um, I think I did shoot a little bit of film. I got a camera guy in. Yeah, there was a bit of film shot. But um, anyway, what happened was I approached Richard Tonietti from the Australian Chamber Orchestra about doing a sound design for it because I wanted something that wasn't it wasn't typical surf music and he was a surfer but I, I've got a bit of a yen for classical music or different music and and so I wrote him an email and told him the idea and he rang me straight away from Sydney and I nearly fell over but that started to create a relationship and a month later he was in Melbourne at Hamer, performing at Hamer Hall and he rang up and said there's some tickets I want you to come on over yarn with you and that um he told me about this project they were doing on King Island um, where they were going to go down and on to surf Finless with Derek Hine and a bunch of surfers and that meant that sort of had me thinking and I wrote a treatment for a documentary idea because he only wanted me to shoot it and that was passed through to the um, by the head of the ACO through to the head of Foxtel, Kim Williams 
and um, he, no, what was it? Yeah, Kim Williams at Foxtel, and he passed it down to um, the head of the bio channel and, and said, give this guy some money. And <laughs> so I suddenly had a budget for this thing. So I went down to King Island and we shot it and I turned it into the, that film Music of Surfica that I did. And that um, sort of kicked off a few years of, like, doing these creative projects with the ACO, um, which was, you know, a couple, two, three years later I did The Reef, which toured... Australia and a little bit in Asia and Europe and then a couple of years later I did the Reef Redux about four years later and, and, so and from that was a much bigger thing. Shooting Reef, how long from concept to bums in seats? Uh, from concept, like when I found out about the Reef, I actually found out about the Reef when I was looking at the Australian... Uh, the Sydney Opera House website just browsing and saw that there was a thing on called The Reef that the orchestra was doing. And I went, oh, that's interesting. And then I went, oh, I wonder what that's all about. This was about 18 months before we actually shot it. And um, and it, I was looking at oh, this music and these people and then director Mick Sowry. And I went, what? No, sorry, no one's told me about this. And I picked up the phone and rang Rich and he goes, hasn't anyone asked you? And I said, well, and he goes... Well, we want you to come up to Western Australia with us and shoot this. And so suddenly I had to put on my idea hat. And um, and that's where the advertising thing kicks in a bit in that you go... Because you've got to have an idea, just don't go off and do it. No, yeah. And, um, and so I at first thought I'd do a kind of a music surfica thing and try and get a documentary to accompany the, to accompany the music, you know, just the shooting... And I had this idea about following song lines across from the east coast to the west coast and ending where we were going to be shooting and and sort of creating that sort of almost that sort of endless tapestry of, of story across the top end and but going and discovering the various um, uh, groups across the whole of Australia and linking it together, sort of making this Indigenous song line because there was a whole Indigenous component of what the reef was to be on the other side. And um, that turned out to not be a great idea. I wrote a, the doco I wrote like called Touching Forever um, and, it, and it got some legs. The Western Australian Film Commission um, were behind it to a point, but I wasn't black, um, so that made it hard. I would have had to bring in some black collaborators and, and time was became an issue and I thought, no, look, I've got to concentrate on the main thing. So what I ended up doing was coming up with this idea of turning whatever ran, whatever footage we managed to get in those two and a half weeks that we shot into something cogent. And um, so I decided that I'd storyboard roughly um, a dawn to dusk sequence of... Uh, Clips. It was ended up being twenty pieces, twenty-one pieces of music, but we we chose them so that they represented a different point in your life. So it was the film started underwater in the dark, and ended with the last star in the sky blinking out. And the underwater in the dark's your birth, and the last star in the sky blinking out's you, as you die. So it was this life arc thing. It's a very Pink Floyd esque. Yeah. It was. <laughs> It was, I, but the thing was, it, it, my intention was that it was this great big continuous visual evolving painting. It's beautiful. It's a very dream time. Yeah. And, well, it, it, and 
but I didn't have words. You had to work it out for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was that's still something I, I, I address whether I should or shouldn't have done it that way. Um, but so to answer your question about the time from shooting to bums on seats, we went up there in the beginning of May. Like, I think it was like something like the 10th of May. We shot until about the 25th of May, 28th of May. Um, and then, and, and Johnny Frank was my main camera, and and Ed Sloan and Ed Salto and Wes Green, all local guys. Mm, um, Sloan was up there. Yeah, and um, and so they were second. Uh, John Frank was main main um, water, and uh, Wes and Ed, the two Ed shot the land stuff. So we came back here and pumped into Wes Green's studio up on Bell's Road there. Or Bones Road or whatever it was, you know, where Wes was up in... No, Ripview Drive. Wes now lives in yeah, Queensland. Yeah, that's right, yeah. yeah. And, um, and uh, edited it. So we edited for th- best part of June and had bumps on seats on the 8th of July. So we, we did the whole two-hour film in basically three weeks and worked pretty much 24-7. Wow. Yeah. That's an amazing feat. Oh, it was ridiculous. Even like other filmmakers, when they see it, saw the reef and said they, they couldn't believe we did it in three weeks. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, that's setting a new benchmark of what, what is possible. Well, well, it was what it basically was, was um, like, and I, as the director, and, and it was John and I editing. So we kind of split it. And Johnny said, I want to do that one. And I'd say, I'd do that one. And, and it worked out like that. Um, and But I'd be keeping an eye on the way it was because John's hugely creative and he, his method of editing was more uh, basically instinctive. You know, you go, that looks good with that. And I'd have to say, Johnny, we've got to have this feeling because this is that part of the story. Other than that, it was all his, but just to keep it in within the picture. Linear, yeah. And equally, when I was doing a cut, it was collaborative. And they go, what do you reckon about this? You know, so because his um, aesthetic is very sensitive... So I'd have to not, not, not take notice if he had a constructive thing to say, which he always did have. And likewise with Richard Tognetti, and we'd send clips up to him because they say, for instance, the last piece um, in it is Beethoven's Cavatina, and the Cavatina is this piece that Beethoven wrote, and when he wrote it, he was so overcome with emotion that he started to cry, and the original document has got his tear stains on it. You can look at it and see these drips all over the writing that he's done. And, and so he's, he said when he finished it, this has to be the thing that is played at my funeral. So, so that's the last piece. It's an incredibly emotional piece. So when we were doing the edit for that, we were, all, we were just struggling with how can we get the vision to um, give justice to the music. And so even into the second reef, we kept changing things because we were trying to get... There's a feeling in German called verklempt, which is like anguished emotion, something like that is its meaning. And, and we were always trying to get that, that sort of intense feeling in the last scenes of the reef. So... <laughs> Whoa, what a three and a half weeks. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, you wouldn't believe it. Yeah. And melding Beethoven, like, you know, like, I, I mean, I, that's that's well beyond my vocabulary of music. Yeah. Um, 
But I, you know, he's not Beethoven for nothing, right? No, no. Well, the, you've got to. I think the more exposure you get to really like good classical music, but you have to. Um, it's to know context, and and uh, like anything. But if you if you start to understand the whys behind what it is, and and the more often you hear it, the more intensely impressive it is. Um, the, only th- the only way I can draw on that is. Um, Shakespeare. Yep. I never, who gives a fuck about Shakespeare? Mm. And then I had this teacher in my second year at school in New York mm. and he had a way of explaining and, and showing you the, the beats yeah. to a sentence. Yes. And then and suddenly making it like uh, make sense and, be, and I could picture it and see it and feel yeah. it. Yeah. Whereas it was once, I'm dyslexic as well, yeah. just gaga, you know. Yeah. And yep. once you're inside that world, yep. it becomes very beautiful. Yeah, and it's understanding. Yeah, or well, you're understanding meter and and as you say the beats and the way it's written. Um, and actually, funnily enough, because I, I was talking to some Greg Day, an author friend of mine, lives down in um, uh, Aries Inlet, and we were talking about Shakespeare just on Tuesday. And his son Paddy is studying uh, VCE and he was struggling because the t- two other books that he was reading weren't Shakespeare and then there was Shakespeare and he was having to write reviews on his books for his VCE and he's going, it's really easy to write, um, you know, a review of his, about this book and that book but he's doing Othello or, and, and he said, it's really hard because those two books I can just write anything about them because they're about life but but Otello's about existence <laughs> and and suddenly you know and it's success it's, it's so much deeper but the fact that he had that perception was Greg's point was fantastic because the, the greater challenges are to do art that's about the whole reason you are and that was that was you know and I sort of felt that resonated with what I'd been trying to do with the reef because it was about life and death and that had been provoked because, you know, just prior to the reef, my dad had died. So I'd become very sort of mortality-centric and, and, you know, about the whole idea of living a life that was honourable and had grace in it and and the gracefulness of of those last years of your life. And obviously with um, my experience over that period, but particularly, you know, when Sue got ill, um, being, seeing, um, watching somebody die uh, is is an incredibly grace-filled experience. You know, it's, it's like... Yeah, you, you, it's almost impossible to describe, but a lot of the, the stuff that I've tried to do now is sort of provoked by, by you know, the, the impending mortality. Like I'm 66, it sort of sits at the back of my mind because I saw how quickly Sue sort of went from bright and bubbly to gone. And, and, and that's why now, out in the surf at Bells and Winky, to be able to still at my age experience it at a reasonable level but, you know, if I can go out on a really good day and have a good surf, it's like hell's bells. I didn't expect that. Hell's bells. <laughs> well, there's that day at bells two months, three months ago on that red board. You got the photo. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah it wasn't. That was just one of those days that came out of the blue. That was uh, an unbelievable day. Yeah, it was as good as I've ever seen it. And, um, and to have 
the everything fall into place where, um, you know, five guys in the water, um, the conditions, the air temp, the, the, the quality of the swell, and then to have a burner, you know, where you couldn't do it wrong for a change, uh, was like, hang on, this, it was a pinch yourself day. Um, so, yeah, I... I no. So sorry, just going back. And there's yeah. something that you said just before that about wanting to live your best life. Um, and not that's a shit way of putting it. Um, you, uh, a life of of good moral and mor- have a good moral compass and yeah. be a better person. That yeah. struck chord there with me for a second because yeah. you know I wrestle with that myself. Yeah. Um, there's definitely a good angel and bad angel floating around over here on the shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 you know, through this weird time and space that we're feeling at the moment, yeah. you know, some days I have that like, I don't give a fuck anymore. Yeah. I'm, I'm tired of caring. Yeah, well, I, 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 I try, and this is a bold thing because none of us are, you know, we all, we all do shit that we're not, not proud of, but... Um, I try just to be as like as kind as I can be and as honourable as I can be. I suppose it's just you know like in crowds, I try to just keep a low profile and and surf around it. And of course, you know you'll get days where you might drop in on somebody, but that's a like maybe a, a winky drop in where you turn around and go, is he there or is he isn't? You know, <laughs> um, but no, from a point of view of a life thing. Uh, I think you, you need to owe it to yourself to keep um, interrogating the way you are with people. You know, how am I behaving? Is this person... It's to see people as people and not things or others, you know, and and I, I, I do this with people like telemarketers because, you know, they ring you up and... And I don't do it all the time because you're sometimes busier, but I'll go, you know, where are you? And they might go, Mumbai, you know, and I go, oh, yeah, right. <laughs> so how long you got before you knock off? And he goes, oh, I'm this one, one guy was classic, actually. And uh, he goes, oh, sir, I'm, I'm knocking off in 20 minutes. And I said, oh, it's fantastic. And so, what, it's a Friday? And he goes, yes, sir. I said, so what, what are you doing? He's oh, I'm going out and getting drunk. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, so he's turned from the, the annoying telemarketer into a, a young guy and, and, you know, Filipino people and stuff and you chat to them and they their days are shit ass. You can imagine you hear all that chatter in the background and you know they're getting ha- ha- stood over by some supervisor, you haven't done enough calls or... And and so I just, you know, keep trying to treat people with respect regardless of um, uh, who they are. You know, it's never... You never just treat, treat them... Because there's... I, I just... Life's too short to be a shithead. You know, it's just be nice, be kind. And, and that kind of guides me. And so sometimes... You know, you think, oh, you're a little bit of a bloody vanilla boy, you know, because you, you're always... But it's, just, it's, it's a good way to try and be 
Oh, it's a great way to try and be. Like, I honestly, Mick, like, you, you are, you know, like, I see you and I instantly, like, go, oh, there's Mick. You know, <laughs> and it's like, oh, it's cool. It's good. You know, like, I don't know. I see you in the water, I see you in the car park. It always brings a smile to my face. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's not like, um, yeah, I, I sort of I start to sound like I'm pumping my tires up, but it's it's not to do. It's just it's just trying to. I say to my boys, um, you know, just tr- be good, be a good man. You know, just you have to try and be a good man. And and I think at the end of my days, if that's what someone said, old Nick was a good man. I, you know, fuck money. You know, and and but that being the other side of that is, well, what else are you doing? And that's just trying with with you know the various things that I'm trying to do with writing and and um, photography and stuff is bring some beauty into the world. You know. Um, well, I think it's there. It's that that you have the ability to see it and show us. Yeah. Well. Um, do you know what the, I mean? The, like- the, the, it's perception um, with. Like honestly, a, 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 like a there's everywhere you look, there's beauty. But you've got to be able to, like on this table, there's beautiful things. If you go into a microcosm, like a, you know, create a frame in like that, you know, squares with the fingers, and you'll go, okay, shoot that, blow it up, paint it, and suddenly it's there's beauty, and you go, oh, I didn't realise it could be seen that way, you know. Um, con- uh, tonal contrasts just blurring shapes uh, the way you crop things um well it's even just looking at a tree yeah and we walk past them all day every fucking day and then you stop and stare at one for anywhere from five to ten minutes and see the subtleties yes exactly yeah yeah tones the way the wind moves through it yeah and it's it's trying if if you sit if you try and be calm and look you'll find it everywhere and through the times that when sue was after Sue had died, and I'd be just toiking off out into Addis, out into the scrub out there and just walking. Or, I'd, or I'd, a number of times I've walked to Bells in the Dark in a storm, you know, just cry my eyes out, um, you know. And, but, you know, the, I'd stop and look up and the moon's breaking through the clouds and look, all of these things were just comfort stuff for me because uh, I was just wrecked. But um, through the that period, that whole thing about there's still beauty out there and oddly enough, you know, that day, the big turning point, I think, of the last 12, 18, 15, 16, 17 months was that day at Bells because that was the day where I suddenly became optimistic because I went, boy, if I can have a day like that at 66, then there's still some life to be left. You know, and I'm, you know, I'm strong and I'm still pretty fit and, and, and you can't go out on days like that if you're not. So, but I'm now it's suddenly you know my benchmark surface in down here are probably somebody like Donny Allcroft, who at 74 is out there still doing it. You go, well, that's still it's real, and he's oddly enough Donny's been my benchmark for about 30 years because he's 10 years older than me, and he's continually pretty much been the oldest surfer because obviously, as we're all aware, the oldest surfers are getting older. And when I first started the oldest surfer, I knew I was 36. Um, and now the oldest surfers I know of are in their 90s, you know, or 80s at least, but there's still guys surfing, you know, to, to, to some degree. I don't think you're much good for much at the 90-something, but if you were getting in the water at that age, well done. But Donnie's at 74 still rock climbing and 
at six foot winky. You know, amazing. Pulls up in his, um, uh, what's the word? On his little combi, man. His combi. <laughs> I just love it. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. love it. And he's got his little parking spot yeah, going on. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, so uh, like that day sort of reawakened both an optimism and I'll never beat that again feeling as well. I, I think I didn't even bother going in the water for about two weeks after that day. But, but I've subsequently, you know, you still get good waves and good surfs and you measure measure yourself amongst the crowds and... But uh, nowadays, being in a crowded surf, you've got to be patient. But to your point, when we were talking earlier before we turned on the mics, um, looking sideways to other spaces, you know, like lesser lesser spots. And because, I mean, you know, when you... If you went from point impossible to point at us, if you really, really wanted to find a good wave, even a crowded wave, you could, you know, because within that five or six miles or whatever it is there's gazillions of good waves yeah yeah you know so in my mind i've been thinking yeah uh you know saying i get on different craft yeah just forget about winky for a second and surf all of them back around to addis yeah and just say okay today i you know i'm gonna go and get the conditions for that one yeah take a board that will suit it yeah not that a board that i think you know what I mean? Yeah. And 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 find the enjoyment of just being in the water for that way. Yeah. Because when we were young, that was. Yeah, it wasn't to do with being having to be bells or winky. It was to do with getting in. And I often think about that because I've been. What used to please me years ago, like I, you know, driving um, home from work um, when I worked in Melbourne, and there'd be a stormy on the bay, and I'm driving home with nearly hitting in, into cars all the way down Beach Road because I'm <laughs> and, and 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 all these little reefs that you're going. One day that's going to work, and one day that's going to work, and you're checking it out. And sometimes you'll pull over and run across the road to see whether that set repeats itself. Yeah, yeah. And it's complete crap. And then. Um, you know, surfing um, the east coast. You know, the Gunnamatta, Portsea, Cape Shank stretch. There's so many waves along that area, but you have to know the coast deeply. All of those roads in, you know, yeah, Pierce Street, and Tiber Street, and the, the, the Central, and a lot of other like, you know, steak and kidney. There's waves like that that are only a three foot swell on a super high tide. But if you get it, it's a fantastic little wave. Um, millions of them. Um, that are nowhere near as good as one wave and bells or winky. Or, you know. And yeah, so when you yeah. finally live four minutes away from those two, yeah. it's hard not to. And because obviously with bells and winky, you've got that thing of that and everybody that's down here knows it, that there's those days when you happen to be Johnny on the spot and you're out there and it's three guys out and it's totally gone offshore and it's good. And And... Or it's just done this thing with the tide, or you get this moment where you get onto a little half-hour burner, and you go bang, 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 and you've got three or four absolute ripper waves, and um, you, life's worth living again. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. And you only get that if you're doing, you know, you are che- re- checking it, checking it regularly. Yeah. yeah. But I do love now onshore. Yeah, yeah. If it's the right sort of strength onshore. And the swell's right and it's not too ridgy and you can get it suddenly, it's all, all working together. It, magic days, because there's hardly anyone out, but 
you know what, you can have an absolutely perfect winky way and shitty onshore conditions because it's cleaned up and then this other one comes through and it'll take you to the valley, you know. And then, like, the, the only other frustration I have is not being as good as I'd like to be because you'll see, you know, you or Kale or somebody doing full or, or um, you know, Dazza um, doing huge fans off the top and my great frustration is that my huge fan is about two foot under the, <laughs> under the lid a lot of the time because my timing's not the same. Or do you Now, this was a question I was going to ask before. Do you, do, do you stretch? Do you, is there no. an outside uh, game? The outside game for all through my... Um, probably much from when I was 27 was running. I ran and ran... I ran as soon as I started to realise that I couldn't just surf and, and I started to realise that my weight would vary if I didn't exercise outside of surfing. I, I probably spent 10 years running 10Ks three times a week. You know, maybe I'd run, um, you know, what was it, a four or five mile run three days a week and surf for both days of the weekend for, you know, six hours each day. Um, and then uh, my knees started to give me trouble, so then I was lap swimming for years. And there'd be a game three, four days a week to two k's every day, uh, well, those days, and then surfing. I'd give myself a couple of days off. So more the constancy of being fit, mm. you know. So have you thought about yoga? I've done yoga, but I've found myself being over competitive myself, and I will always tweak and tweak <laughs> something, you know. <laughs> okay, yeah. And so. I've sort of actually lately I've thought about it. I'm naturally quite flexible, like I've I've got long hamstrings yeah. and so I can even now just flat hand and I don't stretch at all, like if touching toes type thing. Right, wow, yeah. yeah. Um and it's just but at the same time my back I've got um a lordotic back which is a sway back. Uh, so if I bend forward, you know, how say Kelly's got that full curve of his back when he bends forward, that camel hump thing that he gets. Mm, no, know. I don't know. He's got a lower back that bends into a in uh, convex, you know. Mine will... The the best curve I as if, out of my back I can get if I bent down was almost a straight line, you know. So oh, so it doesn't... It's quite stiff yeah. in the forward flexion. Yeah. Um, and, um, and it's just a familial thing, you know. And I've also got a thing called spina bifida occulta, which means that I've got one vertebrae that didn't close at birth. So if um, if I got punched on that vertebrae, it could paralyse me. Um, and that's just a thing. My brother's got it. My brother Billy was um, training for the SAS. He's a soldier. And he was um, doing really well. I think it was about halfway through the Carter course over in Western Australia. This is when he was about, you know, in his early 20s. And uh, Is that the course that you do to get into the, the SAS? SAS, yeah. 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 And... Um, he was doing that 28k or 25k force march with the 80 pounds on the back and you have to cover it in fuck all time like it's f fully heavy but the backpack was hitting him right on the oh, that, that on that spot and suddenly he was just crawling down the road like he couldn't walk because it was it was damaging his spinal cord and they said you're doing fantastic we want you to come back figure out what's going on with the back and he um when saw a surgeon and the guy said if if you kept doing that you'd be a paraplegic so that SAS is out 
so that was the end of that. So Billy ended up, you know, having a stellar career in the army. He became a brigadier and all of that. But he, you know, just did other stuff. So he had a full uh, life in the military. Yeah, yeah. All all of my brothers are soldiers. Really? Yeah. Or were. <laughs> They've all retired now. They're all they're still working in different areas. But Bill retired as a brigadier two years through to three years ago, um, and he followed on from Cosgrove in. Timor. He was a commander in Timor and he was um, head of the Australian Combat Engineers um, and he was the Australian military attaché to Europe or was it England, Ireland and the Netherlands and all of that. You know, like he, that was his last gig. It's almost like his swan song. He did a lot of like um, cool, cool stuff over there. Um, but yeah, he was a good soldier, Bill, as was Brendan and Pat. Yeah. It's a fascinating... I'm fascinated by military life. I don't know yeah. why, you know. Yeah. It's not really something I'm, I want to be, but that... I think it's the, the, the mentality that goes with someone that's so self-sufficient, that's what they make you well, become. Well, it's, 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 it's the thing is that I struck me, because they were all younger than me, and I was a long-haired art student at home, and, and I think they saw the way I was going, stuff that I'm going to do something a little bit more measured. And... Um, and they were also inspired by my grandfather because he'd been uh, Gallipoli and um, the Somme and just the, the Anzac legend. They were quite, quite taken by that. But the, 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 you know, I think Billy's... If, he, if I asked Bill what he thought his greatest thing that he did was, was he worked for years and years with the United Nations on the banning of landmines. Um, and, um, like Princess Di kind of thing? yeah. Yeah, but, you know, with armies from all around the world negotiating with Russia and Americans and whoever else to try and... Because landmines are the one of the great blights on post-war areas because there's just people losing legs and arms and all of this stuff and it's incredibly inhumane, um, you know, if any weapon's humane. But the, the, the um, idea of just leaving something that's meant for a strategic purpose but it lies there for decades... You know, Cambodia, you know, you name a war zone, they, that, if a war's finished, you know, getting rid of these damn things is um, almost impossible. So there's a big push within military around the world in some militaries and those ones that are thoughtful not to use them. Just, um, so anyway, he did a lot of work in that. Um, and, and that was the thing. I mean, the thing that I realised with, is that, you know, good, you know, armies is it's not about... Um, not necessarily about killing people. <laughs> it's about you know these buildings, projects, and you know stuff. It's it's defence, not offence. More often than mm. it's the other way around, um, in my view. And having direct three guys that have all had active duty and none of them have killed anybody, but they've all um, been in situations in peacekeeping forces or you know. Um, and, um, you know, Billy actually worked in Afghanistan with, with the Mujahideen um, before the Taliban existed. All these guys became... But he was teaching them how to defuse landmines. You know, he was working on that. What an absolute experience yeah. to be in Afghanistan, one, yeah. and then to be, you know, working with... What are they? Were they rebel? Yeah, well, the Mujahideen... Uh, this was post the Russian... Um, yes. thing, you yeah. know, and it was in that, that area at uh, that time. This is in the early 90s, I think it was. So, yeah, yeah. 
And so um, your parents, your dad, you said your dad was in the uh, mining, mining, engineer. mining engineer. Yeah. And he worked Tassie, did he work all over the place or was yeah, it just look, Tassie? Yeah, when, when I was a kid, he was actually, a, um, I was born in Fiji. Were you really? Yeah. Because um, I'd, um, mum and dad had gone over there basically, you know, like post getting married and so so sort of pause you was that when it was like uh under australian rule no it was under british rule back it was around then. british rule yeah okay. yeah and uh dad went over there to manage a mine um he, he was 27 28 mum was 29 i think um and i was born over there and then my sister kath was born there too but um i we came back when i was about 18 months old um so uh, my memories of Fiji, I've got a memory of on the plane, strangely enough, coming back, which is, you know, 18 months is surprising, but um, I, I do know it happened because I could tell mum what row, what seat we were in and she couldn't believe it. <laughs> so, um, but, uh, so anyway, that's by the by where we were talking about um, the work. And so dad became a um, inspector of mines, uh, like in South Australia, which is a guy that goes out to check little mining things or any mine in the in that state, to w- whether it um, conforms to reg, and so I got very early memories going out into the outback with Dad, and um, you know driving along with him and having my sort of snoozing on his lap and looking up between his arms to the steering wheel into the sky, those sort of things in the outback and sleeping in the back of a Ute under the stars in the middle of South Australia and campfires and all of that. It was wonderful stuff. And then he moved into quarrying and then and moved to Melbourne to work with, within that area and then mining again, and that's the Tasmania thing. And, you know, just his career went on all revolving around those sorts of things. Um, but uh, And Mum was a, a nurse before she was a mother. Um, and obviously she was a you know, what you'd call a 50s housewife. But, um, you know, I've sort of reflected on that a lot and and women, you know, there's so many women who, you know, um, the amount of wasted intellect, <laughs> you know, that happened through those years because it wasn't the dumb thing for a, a woman to um, have a job. Mm. Um, but And I, then I'd look, think about how much mum did for me in helping me with homework and, you know, whether it's maths homework or art homework or whatever, she'd be putting on that hat and then having to cook dinner and then managing five kids and and um, huge amounts of work. So It's funny, so but my grandmother, I, I think of that, well, my grandfather was a doctor. Yeah. You know, he was always a bit of a... He was a smart guy, you know, yeah. and he's more of a humanitarian than anything. Yeah. He's just more about caring for people. But I, I do remember overhearing everyone saying how much smarter my grandmother was, mm. but she was just she just right. stayed at home and looked yeah. after the kids. Yeah, and 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 now obviously now with you know not perfect but far better equality, um, you know, like the only difference between men and women is opportunity, you know. So, and totally like honestly, I was watching a couple of those. There's two girls that have been surfing Winky a lot lately yeah. from Janjuk, and yeah. then there's Lakey. Yeah, and they're surfing better than eighty percent of oh, the guys. I know there was well those two lasses that were. Oh, I, I've got to stop myself saying that young women <laughs> um, out at Winky the other day. Um, that were. Um, oh yeah, we're talking about. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. they were ripping. Yeah, 
They've been out heaps lately and they're ripping. And, like. and um, <laughs> you know, it's sort of... You have to sort of turn off your male ego when you know that you're going to get absolutely sliced and diced if they paddle out. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and I've watched, um, you know, Angie Ball and Bella um, and I particularly remember um, Angie because she'd be out with her dad um, seven or eight years ago as an eight-year-old eight getting pushed in virtually at Rincon and now she's made the Bell's 50-year storm. I mean... And, you know, this bright little button face and smiling like an angel and then she's just turn around and go, like, and I've seen her take some hell drops. I mean, she gives it a... They both give it a great big crack. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. But it's, yeah, it's funny because I had that thought again after seeing you. Know, it was yesterday and I just watched Lakey blast one and I was just like, she's by far the best surfer out here yeah, right now. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's such a, you know, the male ego, everyone's like, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you have to bury that, you know, because, I mean, in the end, an athlete is an athlete and they're just gifted people. And, um, you know, more more good luck to them. I, I mean, you know, we all aspire beyond our, our abilities. Um, and as your abilities fade, you aspire more, you know. I mean, but I mean, there's nothing wrong with always wanting to get better. Well, I think that, that I've said this before, that this is like uh, surfing is like, uh, you know, oh, it's a, such a stupid analogy, but I'll say it anyway. It's like, you know, they say, I don't know, ninjas, they're always evolving, you know, and they yeah. just ta- carry that art form. It's like a surfer is always staying fit. Yes. Staying tuned with nature to... Yeah keep progressing because you never you're like I, I've, I can do better yeah well I, I, that's right and I, I I think at the back of my mind like there's certain things that have stayed with me in surfing you know like the fact that I can still get out there is one but um, the bit my okay I'll go back a step my big regret about surfing bells and winky is my backhand's gone to the dogs because I just writes 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 but that being said um, there's a certain point where you know you've got you've got your repertoire, you know you know you're going to make most of the drops. Your your bottom turns, your bottom turn. Um, I always try to. I'm always looking about how I'm coming off the top, whether I and but I know that I have a wavy arm that you know does this thing and uh, and uh, and and stuff um and the fact that you're still conscious of it and this and you're aware that you're trying to get it right and some days you do and um like my bottom turn tends to be a little bit too stand-uppy you know like it's not sitting in the chair like you say if you saw someone like Boots Garrard who's got this ripper bottom turn or or Jeff Sweeney these really tight low ones and it's just this full g-force thing and and but my muscle memory is such that when I'm into that position I'm still not sure whether I'm in the right one but I I've got as like you know it's when you learn to surf and my hero surfer back when I was in that uh, that um, beginning that time when I was aiming at somebody was a Hawaiian surfer called Barry Kanaiapuni BK and he he was like the man at sunset but he had this like mad late drop and almost this square bottom turn but it was a little bit more you weren't in that Boots Garrard or Tom mm. Curran low thing, it was a bit more stood up, but it was super powerful. And that was the bottom turn that I wanted. 
you know, like that was what I was aiming at. It's a little bit like your back leg's a little bit straighter, but it just you just hook into it and lean. And mine's a little bit like that. It's that sort of bottom turn. And in fact, Derek Hines said, you've got a bit of a BK bottom turn, Nick, you know. And I went, well, that's about as big a compliment as you can give me, you know. And But at the same time, that's a, a lateral bottom turn. It doesn't take you straight up. It takes you, like, diagonally up. Whereas if you've got that really compressed low bottom turn and you can keep holding that compression up till you're starting to go straight up the wave and then you're extending and releasing as you're coming off the top, you're going to get a bottom turn, a top turn that's actually at the top. If you watch Adam Robinson, he kills it. Like Adam's almost like style perfect in my eyes. He doesn't fall either. No, no, he does. It's all like brilliant. And the fact that such a big, strong guy can ride such tiny boards, like incredible surfer. I watched him get one from Winky like yesterday through a rink on. Yeah. And he was on this fishy looking thing. Yeah. But God, yeah. I don't know how he made half the sections and no, then... No, and And Adam's sort of, you know, if I was a young surfer, I'd be going, be like him. Be like him as a surfer and be like him as a person because the way he conducts himself in the water is exemplary. He never loses his shit and he doesn't. No, I know, no, um, yeah. I, I think the best surfers never do. Yeah. Yeah, they're just on a different playing field. Yeah. Mentally and... Well, yeah, I mean, if you're at a point where um, you're in that really elite thing, you don't really have to um, be a, a rude... Yeah, regulator. I think yeah, you've regulator, got to regulate. You know, um, you just don't have to. It's just unnecessary. Yeah. Um, and I, I've got issue with the whole idea of regulators to it. You know, I think there's moments, but to be like having... I, I have a thing about... Um, somebody that's got to be aggro to people you know on a at least i can understand i've been done it myself where i've lost it at people but that's usually been when i've it's been like absolutely atrocious behavior and there's usually someone else that will call them out before i do but um a lot <laughs> many 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 people and that, the, the last time i did something like that was years and years ago but um and that particular guy was paddled out very good surfer and he just kept started dropping in on people and laughing at him like because he knew he was and i called him out on that um and then i fell off in front of him on the next wave (laughs) (laughs) um but um that's what i started better just to be quiet out there and just carry on. I know, I know, I know, I know, but you can't be a doormat either. I no, I mean, yeah, it's it's funny that though. You don't you don't have to be a doormat, but you don't have to think that you're defined by whether you're getting waves or not either. You know, it's it's. I think you define yourself by, you know, like I still get waves. Um, I, I you were getting yeah. great waves the other night, but but I you get them by you know age and rap cunning and you know where to you, you can you know well you know winky and you've got say two or three waves of coming up but you know there's going to be one that little bit wider and you'll go i'm going to hedge my bets and i'll bolt that way or opposite you'll go i can see that lump out the back and you'll go the other way um you know the problem is that on a sort of a good day at winky there's 55 guys that also know how to read that <laughs> you know and uh, and uh, so but but you know not all of them have got 50 years of experience out there so this the experience thing does count for a bit then you've got you know 
guys that are masterful way like they read it so well and they've got say they've been surfing since they were five out there um and they've still got 20 years of arms left in them um and that makes it but i i'm, I'm still like trying to resist getting an absolute ball buster big board on on a small day i still you, you know i ride tiny little boards because at times because i love that feeling but your wave count drops but um, but to be just that sort of freedom of a little fish um is they're just zoomers you mm. know you just zip down it's just fabulous squirty feeling and you can't it's like riding a long board that's five foot eight or five foot ten and it's but you've got you've got that ability to sort of swing it around and do full cutties and and um i'm fighting my age you know well i think it's a good know. thing it's a good fight well it is it's 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 fun and like you know i sometimes think like the funniest thing is when I haven't shaved and I've got a full white beard and I get less waves than if I've had a shave, because hold they, on, that's a mental thing. What's going on here? Well, what's going on there is that they they I, I look, you know, maybe ten years younger if they can't see grey hair. So if I've got my hood on and I've had a shave, I'm just an older guy. But if I've got the full white beard and I've got my hood on or I don't have a hood and on this white hair and that with a little bloody skull cap at the back and you know like. Like, oh, he's he's easy game. This guy, <laughs> I'm gonna. You know. Oh, honestly, it's oh, so funny can't... that you're thinking that because it's like, oh, you can see I've got some. But there's a thirty percent. I would say a thirty percent difference in wave count depending on if I've had a shave or not. Well, shave every day, <laughs> <laughs> but I tend not to, as you know. Oh, that is. It's funny. I'm so glad you said that because it's like having a shave or not having a shave is pretty psychological. Like sometimes I'm, I, I think the same thing. Yeah, you know, like oh, you're not, you're nowhere near at the point you have. No, but have a look there. Or yeah, there. you've got little bits. Yeah. But that's, I mean, somebody in the water the other day said to me, because a little grummy had just snuck inside him, and he said that wouldn't thirty years ago, um, it, a grummy wouldn't dare do that. No, um, but the grummies now just I don't know what it is, but they you're fair game. Like it's a different thing. I was thinking this just before you came over and because uh, I've been rattling around with my own demons with uh, yeah. how many people are in yes. the water at the moment. Yeah, I've and, seen and that. <laughs> <laughs> that was classic when you said, excuse me for a minute while I go and unload on this block. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you, boy, did you unload. <laughs> I felt terrible for days. Did you really? Yeah, I did. You know, It like, was a very measured assassination. <laughs> it really was. He, it was like well, a hitman. Like you said, I had three people say what he did. He snaked me. He, yeah. I, he had the three. I had three people paddle back up and go, "That was fucked." Yeah. And I was in my head. I was cooking because he paddled. Yeah. You know, he snaked me so heavily. So, anyway, um, oh fuck, I lost my train of thought, Mick. Yeah. Um, no, you were talking about um, the. Oh god, now I've gone and done it too. Uh, the young, the, the whippersnappers. Oh, the grummies. Yeah, yeah, yeah grummies paddling inside. Oh, yeah, no, yeah. what I was thinking is when I was younger, I can't tell you how many times I got sent in yeah. from Bird Rock and Winky. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Get the fuck out of the water. Yeah. You know, yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> and it just doesn't happen anymore. No. And I think that's part of why I'm stuck with half these fuckheads should be at point, <laughs> talking point. Yeah. yeah. And i got to let that go. Yeah, you Because it's different. 
Well, it is different. And again, to my point earlier, they're all people trying to... The, the only thing is when they're out of their depth technically and they're starting to become dangerous and if they just don't have a, an idea... Like the one... And again, this is, again, a measured thing. But, you know, we paddle off the beach at Bells to get to Winky and historically say when I was a young surfer I'd you know you'd have your eye out on the the that big one that might come out out you know further up towards the button that might um opportunistically give you a first wave you yeah, know yeah yeah like a nice westerly hook on it yeah yeah and um and you still will grab those ones but if there's a pack on uppers you don't sit on the button side of the pack you paddle past the right. pack yes you know, that's yes. only good manners to that, do 100%, that. 100%, yep. And so, and we've all had this happen where we've been worked our way up through the pack to be our, my turn's next and someone's come across from the button and just taken the wave and you just go, you know, your heart sinks. It's sort of, oh, fuck, you know, I've got to wait because if you've got a, like a west swell and it's like a set every 20 minutes and there's your chance and it's gone... And I've got to sit here for another 20 minutes before another one comes. And by that stage, the the pecking order might have got a little bit muddied, you know. And well, that's exactly the same thing yeah. happens. Take take the, the, the button and make it uppers with lowers. Yeah. Right, people sneak from... Yes. Up, uh, and, yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and forget about the pecking order that's been happening yeah, on this Yeah, that's right, peak. that's right, yeah, 100%. And, and, and look, it's just... And, and that's what happened that day that I lost it. And it's just because if you've got a crowd of 40 or 50 people, we've all had days out there when there's a crowd like that, but it is still a happy surf. And then you've got other days out there and it's just, it's just uh, I won't call it carnage, but it's dog-eat-dog. Um, and it's only an attitudinal thing. Um, and, but, and there will always be people out there that are taking advantage of it and there will always be people out there going, no, it's your turn or... And I think that giveaway, getaway, if you even aspired to that, um, and again, you know, I, I, I will be opportunistic sometimes because it's just there, but at the back of my mind is still that little mantra of try and be the best you can be. Um, and, and so if it's like that surf the day before yesterday, I've got two ways in two hours, but... Uh, again, because I waited and I was patient, I actually got a really, really good one. Um, and you go, well, it might have been the best wave that I saw come through that that whole session as far as the wave quality, not necessarily how I surfed it. But you get them. You don't have to get ten. You could get three if they're really good and you feel better about yourself at the end of it mm -hmm. than if you've managed to snake and bite and claw and you've got a bigger wave count but half the crowd's shitty on you, you know? Yeah. Um, or hunt around for a quiet spot. I mean, classic person who does that's red white. You know, red just chases these little, um, like odd spots all over the place. But you couldn't if you go to his house and look at his his calendar. He's got a calendar, and it's every bloody day he's ridden somewhere different. Is that right? Oh, it's just crazy, and they're all these funny little names that he's got for breaks like you know button bay which is the the eastern edge of bells on a big easterly swell that he says it's like massacre but it runs into the button from just 
you know, that left-hander that y runs... Yeah. yeah that, that's, a that's a spot to rip. I don't think anyone else even thinks about it, does I've it? watched it a couple of times yeah. and never thought about it. Yeah, no, he'll, he said, you know, hectic, because it, it finishes on, in the, on the rocks pretty much. But Did he post that photo the other day of massacres? Old, old, old photo, did you see that? Um, I, it? Well, actually, I don't know that I saw it, but funnily enough, I've been seeing a few old, old, old photos of that because... A friend of mine's helping PK from Port Campbell with a few old photos of that and he'd sent me some old photos of massacres because uh, PK's doing a book on his life down at Peter Kirk House mm. um, on his life down that area, which will be at private publishing. He's not going to go and blow the, blow the bacon on mm -hmm. all of the magic that's mm -hmm. down there. So we won't talk about that mm -hmm. anymore because I'll get shot. But, um, yeah, uh, but I've seen a lot of photos of that coast and obviously, back in the late 70s, early 80s, surfing down there when you could have... I've got photos at home when, you know, that whole no-photo palaver wasn't a thing. And it wasn't... You don't shoot to publish, but you shoot for memory. And so I've got some ripper... Like, the first time I surfed the well was an amazing day. Like, as big as maybe six to eight foot well, but perfect. Um and I couldn't believe it. And actually, my mate Rod Hyatt said, this is as good as it ever gets. And I've never seen it like it since. You know, it was just this incredible throaty it's right so hand. It's so fickle. Oh, yeah. Tell One me. evening, perfect. The yeah. next morning, same, everything, yeah. nut. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but when it's good, it's an incredible wave. Um, and, yeah, all, that whole coast is just full of magic. Did you read the, um, did you read the book... Barbarian Days. Yeah. What did you think of that? It was really strange. I, I, I enjoyed it um, because when Bill Finnegan was um, doing that, I was doing the same thing in the same general area because um, I'd um, 78, 79, 80, 81, I was sort of in and out of um, Europe and Spain and Morocco in a combi van. And so he'd be talking about and, – and where the places like he did go that I didn't like – um, like Madeira, uh, where he had a lot of really good experience, was a place that I thought, should I go over there? And I didn't. And so he actually kind of lived a larger version of what I would was doing. And I was doing it with a mate one time and by myself another time um, and went through, like, was in Hosegor in 78. Wow, um, that must have been pretty special. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, it was only about five or six local surfers. Um, and so... We had a ball there, like perfect waves and, you know, it was food and most beautiful people and lovely, beautiful French girls and uh, it was crazy. And then across Spain um, and um, down Portugal and then I, that particular trip, I didn't get down to Morocco, then I went across to Sri Lanka and then into Indo and Bali. I, I, I sort of found myself at Jakarta Airport I'm going, do I go to Nias? And I I was been travelling and exhausted and I went... And I, to this day, I didn't go. And there's a bit of me going, I wish I'd gone. But Nias was an absolute malaria pit at the time. And, um, you know, I did what I did. I had a fantastic time in Bali back then. It was 1970, 1980 in Bali. Well, there um, mustn't have been too many people around then either, Actually, right? I'm, I'm doubling up. Sorry, that first trip I went to Hawaii 
um, that was my ambition. I actually went from from Europe to Hawaii. It was the second trip I went over the other way. But and Hawaii was, you know, just my f- the ambition thing. But I ended up getting Russian flu. So for the month and a bit that Russian I was there, flu. Yeah, it was a Russian flu. Like it wasn't a p- pandemic, but it was one of those epidemics. Was, that happened to be a particularly bad flu that was flooding around. So a week into my um, month in in Hawaii before going home, which was like the the um, penultimate part of the trip, I ended up flat out on a bed sick as a dog for most of it. So it was a bit of a dead trip that. Um, but um, <laughs> and then I got home. Blah, blah, but then I saved up again and went off and did it France, Spain, blah blah blah, all of that because I was wanting to re- kind of relive that first part. And then I went down to Morocco and surfed all around there, and that was fantastic. And then I went across to Sri Lanka and um, surfed there and then across to Jakarta Airport and that was when I went, do I go left or right? Yeah. And decided not to go to Nias and then ended up in Bali and had a fabulous time there. But that was like 1981 in Bali and there was hardly... It was like palm trees and uncrowded and um, relatively. It was nothing like... The, between Kuta and the airport, there was just palm trees. Now it's like... Now it's... And from, from Kuta to um, Uluwatu was just country roads. You kind of would have been nice to see some worldly tra- surfers in that time, wouldn't it? Well, yeah, uh, well, Bali was sort of discovered. I mean, there was, was plenty yeah. of surfers around, but um, it was nothing like... I mean, uh, Uluwatu had two Losmans on it, you know, at the top there. Um, now it's like a city, mm. you know. It's like a Greek village or something, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but... Um, it's a whole other thing. Um, it still has its charm because I was there last year briefly. Um, had a few days there last year. And um, it's in a funny kind of way, I kind of liked it. It was just this bizarre melting pot of people um, but it still had the barliness about it. If you sort of plop in a little warung and overlooking Ulu's sipping on a... A bintang. <laughs> Still not a lot to. <laughs> Still happy days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it sort of has a certain charm, <laughs> but um, yeah, it's like those times back then were probably still my happiest times of my you know pre-married life, because you know the happiest times in your life I'd have to say with you know the, with Sue with the kids, but from birth through to about twelve. Because it's that whole intense parenthood thing, but but the joy of you know raising kids in retrospect is hard to match. It's sort of at the time you're just exhausted, and yeah. and when am I going to have a life again? But then you realise that it was the life. That's and and now it's um, I you know we're all going through. I think every point of your life, you've, there's sort of still sort of joys to be had. I hope you know it's a little bit challenging at the moment. I, you know. I do. Um, well, I, I mean, I don't know what it's like to be in your shoes, but I know that every like I was having a talk to someone, a friend of mine last night, who um, I, I, she was just saying how hard she finds it to be alone. She said she's mm. divorced, mm. Um, has kids, has is in a relationship that she doesn't really happy in that they're not really together, you yeah. know, and I was just, I didn't really realise that and she was like, I just find it so hard because I'm unhappy in this area of my life but I'm unhappy, I don't want to be at home alone mm. and I hate that feeling. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, obviously I found myself alone after um, Sue's illness and that, um, 
and I suppose I'd just say Sue died of pancreatic cancer 18 months ago or in January last year and that was very sudden like it was five months and it was she was gone five months yeah um five weeks and five months and two and a bit weeks yeah so that um and you go like the past year had been like I went to grief counseling and and that had been offered by the palliative people at Barland Health that they got a phone call and I went and I was a complete wreck and um I went okay I'll go along and what it does is normalize it and you realize that you're um this is a part of what it's not like divorce you know you don't didn't sign up for it um suddenly the person that's half your life is gone it's like losing an arm and and Sue was a pretty like big personality and very much filled my life but um and and those parts of your life that are about like affection and and um you know somebody to hug and stuff like that you know you you you, it's very hard thing to suddenly not be there um because and i'm a tactile person like i'll I'll hug hug a rock (laughs) you know know? well sharing Uh, time yeah it's sharing time and 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 uh, you know it's just i think part of being human is skin time you know being that sort of contact and everybody that's been locked up by themselves in covid would know that that suddenly thing that you know, we'd go out and you normally give a friend a hug and you're sort of tapping elbows and kicking toes and you're feeling quite ridiculous about it because in, 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 in the evolved Australia that we have, hugging's kind of a thing you do. Um, but then if you've got a loved one, you know, your partner or something like that, that's a thing you do all the time and that's suddenly gone and you're going, what? With what? You know, it's sort of like... And I've got my son, Tommy, who lives with me and, you know, thankfully we're... Um, you know, even though he's a problematic twenty mid twenties lad, that's like um, glorious in his own way. But his greatest glory is that you know, if, as I said to a friend of mine, you know, if I'm feeling low, this lanky, smelly arm will come around me and he'll give me a hug and go, "Come on, Dad, it's going to be all right." You know, and you've got to count your blessings and. Like both my boys still, we still hold hands driving down the road, you know. And then the handle, if a truck goes past and they can see through the window, the hand gets. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know, like emotional transparency is a good thing. Yeah. You know, I, I think um, the more men that could be emotionally open, the better the world would be because they're sort of not closed up and shrivelled. And it's just easy to lose perspective on how long what you know mortality uh evaporating time i've got to have these things to be a fulfilled human being but really do do we like well that goes back to that thing and my brother reminded me of it um but it's sort of just the thing be good be kind if that's the end of your day um at the end of your days if that was what said about you or me he was a good man he was a kind man well i'd rather have that said than he was a rich man mm. because it usually goes with an asshole well not necessarily i've known some really good rich <laughs> blokes <laughs> and women but um but um it's just it has it has to be at least an aspiration it can't be 
because you're never going to get it right all the time because you're just not it's not you're just human you know you're going to have cranky days and uh, but be aware of it's a cranky day and say sorry afterwards yeah you know yeah um and i i get that with tom because i get cranky i said well you bloody clean up after you've made your breakfast of course it doesn't get done but um I'll, I'll say sorry mate it's a bad morning you know, or he wakes up terribly, you know, like he always wakes up, oh, he's the Tom Grumps, and he'll grumble around, you know, have a crack at me, and then he'll, 20 minutes later, oh, sorry, Pops. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know, self-awareness, I think. And and loved ones, like, I feel like sometimes we are harshest with those that we love, mm. you know, and I just, you know, that's reflected in my own family, like, well, of course, but that's the thing because they're your intimate others and, and they're, they're the ones that are... You're at your most open. So, you, you know, you know, family family um, or, arguments... Or they call stuff. you out. Well, yeah, well, they do. <laughs> they, they know you're bullshit, you know. That's right. And, and, was, and, and you're going to be more open, but it's, it's... That's why families have fights, but they still love each other. It's just... Like, to be honest, if I said if, if um, my at-home behaviour was um, a, an exemplar of my outward world, I might be strung up, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because, you know, sometimes I'll, I completely lose it because I try... Sue was incredibly neat and tidy and I try and keep the house that way, but, like, every week, like, this today I'll probably do a big clean-up and I know within a couple of days it's going to be back to... You know, there's a thing in science, uh, you know, called entropy that everything sort of descends towards chaos. It's the natural um, a natural state of being. Horror. So, so What's that called? Entropy. Entropy. Yeah, so... It's, Is the unravelling to chaos. Yeah, so, it, yeah. Naturally. Naturally. That's what will happen over trillions of years. But, but it's... But a... The only place that a tidy room can be is it will it follows physical laws. It will get messy, eventually, and you know it will because even if you never touched it, it'll suddenly become dusty and then and the house will, everywhere. and then the house will fall down, eventually. So, but but if you tidy a room, you know that in three days it's going to be less tidy just because of stuff. Life. Life. Life's messy. Yeah, and life, exactly. But it's that, that's the way. So it's a continual trial to control what's around you, but in the end it will still turn to shit. And <laughs> so... <laughs> so... Uh, from the, and if Sleep you look, tight. <laughs> if you look at... But existentially then, you know, you, you're probably in your life form are trying to fight the entropy of life to death you know you as a, a as a entity will you know cease cease yeah uh, so it's about but it's just to make the most of the time while you're before the entropy takes over <laughs> you know well, no 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 I, you know i was listening to the barefoot investor yesterday yeah, you yeah. know i've been trying to like educate myself a little bit of like <laughs> where does the fuck does my money go <laughs> and um <laughs> and so he was talking about like how much crap we've got and how in and, and what there's some statistics on how much stuff we buy and how how 
how quick is the arc till it ends up in landfill. Everything yeah. we yeah. have ends up yeah. in landfill yeah. or in the earth. Totally, yeah. And how, how quick is that arc? And it was like the stats, stats that he was throwing were like, fuck me drunk. Yeah, I know. Well, you know, that other stat that I've heard repeated several times is every piece of plastic that you've ever used in your life is still there. You know, and if you think about it like that, um, it makes you start to think really heavily about the next time you buy something wrapped in plastic because you know it's not going to go away. It'll ex- certainly exceed your lifetime by orders of magnitude and some pieces won't ever go away. They'll be fossil plastic in five million years' time or 10 or 15 So, you know, the consumption... Uh, this is the other thing I've been thinking about. Uh, is the white elephant in the room here just population? Uh, the elephant in the room, there's a mixed metaphor there, the white elephant in the room. <laughs> 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 is that the saying, though? No, it's the, it's the elephant in the room. <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> Something's a white elephant, but the elephant in the what room. What is a white elephant, then? A white elephant, what is, a white elephant is, um, that's... Uh, Oh fuck! Look it up, but it's not a. It's not a. It's, it's not. It's yeah, not a white yeah, elephant in the room. Yeah. It's just an elephant. It's yeah. a grey elephant. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's just a no, fucking elephant the, there. The elephant in the elephant in the room is that thing that's that no one's willing to talk about. Is what you're talking about. And, yeah. And so, what was the question again? It was, is it population? Um, no, it's partly population. It's distribution of wealth. Um, and and. And attitude, this is my point of view anyway, and I think attitude to um, consumption and and possessions and... So do you think coming actually, from a marketing need? point of view you see that clearer? Well, I was part of the problem um, in that that's what we did, was trying to get people to buy or buy yeah. things. Um, Consume, get this. And probably back then, and I know no, it wasn't probably, I know my argument to myself was I was helping an economy work you know if someone had a product um, and that product was made by a company that employed people then by selling that product and making it successful that company would succeed in people at homes and jobs and all of that so it was that sort of capitalist type of thing and I don't sort of I'm not entirely in disagreement with quasi-capitalist thing about you need to be able to make and sell things to make a living but there's a conundrum there because capitalism as it stands is kind of like I feel like it's has to change because endless consumption um, isn't sustainable we can't keep thinking that growth all the time is the only way you know, population. Yeah, well, population growth and growth of um, cities and economies and and having more, 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 more. But um, I don't know what the answer is because you're, you've got... The thing is, with... And there's better people that talk about this than me, but obviously. But you've got an enormous amount of people... No, not a very small amount of people making enormous like ridiculous amounts of money like ceos making you know five thousand times what their workers are paid that sort of levels of difference it shouldn't be like that people you know people should be able to be paid a salary like the base the the minimum wage hasn't gone up in years um the dole hasn't gone up in years people that are i've got a real thing about people that um 
will never ever be able to succeed in anything because of the accidents of nature of their their either their their the brains they were born with, handicaps, luck, um, people fall by the wayside and they need to be able to be supported with dignity and have a dignified life. And, and, but you don't... And the only way that happens is for there be a, both a, a more equitable range of salary from a, a really livable wage as a minimum wage a really livable wage to you know a top end where if you're starting to earn like gazillions you don't actually need that and that and that should be taxed at a quite high rate because after you're in luxury how much more luxury do you need well the barefoot investor spoke about that yesterday too and and so he said after 70 grand you don't notice the difference or something well i I mean of course you're going to but i've so my salary at different times in my life has been, you know, six figures, you know, when I was in advertising and, and you know, beyond the thing of probably at times spending beyond what we were earning because you get into that loop. But if you, can man- if you can find a way to manage it, you can have a very comfortable life. Um, but, but I do know... I know people that are... Um, you know, I know at least one billionaire um, through um, my philanthropist working on the reef and stuff like that. And you don't need to be a billionaire. You don't need to have that much money. No, um, I'm not for But me. then, yeah. but I suppose you know, if you those, oddly enough, those particular people give a lot of it away, um, like and um, into the arts or into charity. And you got these people like Bill and Melinda Gates, who who's you know, when he dies, it'll all be gone to charity mostly. It's the same with Warren Buffett. Some people think like that, but you can be damn sure Donald Trump won't be doing that. You know, fat chance. Well, um, it's interesting, um, you know, what's happening right now in America. Yeah. And you're saying about this top down scale being so out of whack. Yeah. It's even further out of whack over there. Well, America shocks me. Like, like uh, homelessness over there. Oh. Is but, but there's this um, thing over there that, uh, like, it's historically it comes back, you know, colonial times, slavery. Um, they, they've got a different attitude to the down and out, or, or why people don't have. Um, they've got, and look, someone will shout me down the way I express this, but there's a mindset over there and one here that um you know it's all up to you um you know to make your life and you can make a good life that whole freedom thing Mm. but it just doesn't work like that some people life turns to shit no mental health and they're or they're born into it yeah or or they're you know through things like mental health or ill health or you know the idea that you can't have universal free healthcare and and education. I mean, half the reason there's so many um, people that um, are supporting Trump is that they're not informed well enough to know the difference. No, they're so you know. fed up with the current system. Well, they kind of are. I'm saying that wrong, but if if the more educated a population is, the more thoughtful they'll be. The, the more critically. The, the more they'll be able to think critically. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, not, and, not and everything they're told, believe. Yeah, you, and 
you start to learn how to go to the source with information and that's why conspiracy theories happen because people are just caught up in they read something and the way it's couched seems believable so that must be true but if you know how to go to the source with the information and research you'll start to go hang on a minute you need to put the light on and go is what i'm reading or is what i'm hearing hearing the truth but then to know where to go to find the information to come to the to a more informed point of view and then make up your mind but um and sometimes it will you know because maybe by by your um, inclination you might be either conservative or liberal you're going to sort of swing one way or another but you know historically say in the states before before this sort of mad swing to the deep right um, if you looked at the policies of earlier republicans they're probably much more left than the cu current batch of democrats are you know people were um it was kind of there were kind of times you know Roosevelt and the New Deal and oh things like that, you know, they, they were thinking about people in a general sense and not just about making money and um, but these um, strange freedoms that they seem to be holding on to, like the Second Amendment and stuff, the gun shit. I think it's in yeah. the New York Art Gallery or the New York Museum. I can't remember which one it was in, but there's a whole big thing that Roosevelt wrote yeah. on life what life life is to be though like the principles of yeah. american life yeah that's right yeah well, we could do the whole google it thing it's yeah. beautiful yeah it is like it's so yeah touches your yeah. heart but they're so far removed from what those that yeah, that they've is sort of veered away from it um and um but yeah look hopefully it'll sort of swing back the other way it seems to go like a pendulum but I, I just sort of I worry about what the end of all of this will be in the shorter term. Mm. Um, this sort of tendency to go into, you know, like this desire to have strong men as their leaders, like, you know, inverted commas, strong men, not good, kind men, that, you know, people like Obama who, who you know, was somebody who really really wanted to make things better and was hamstrung by a, a um the fact that they he, their party didn't have um, yeah what is it the second tier of yeah well they yeah. He, they, he didn't have congress behind that's him right, yeah. and they, they just blocked was, everything they blocked everything yeah. there was i read something late last night on the um you know speaking about that gap that you're talking about with um you know how the in people earn a great amount of money and little amount of money and then but the, the the thing that i was reading last night was the gap between youth and how they are feeling and mm. then you have leaders like trump or who's the other guy that could get voted in hopefully it's him but oh, yeah biden biden mm. um but still there's a that 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 generational gap that the the young people are not going to be seen or heard and that's at the moment part of what this revolution looking like a revolution could be mm. that no matter what happens if that gap's not bridged and they don't take the younger part of society more seriously then they're going to have these more uh riots and stuff more well it's like a, where where yeah the the world at the moment is um Like, I'm not a particularly political person and I'm not as well-informed as I'd like to be. I, I've been well-informed enough, but my observation is that... Um, you know, we've, we've had probably the most tumultuous six months 
the, in any of our lifetimes in Australia in that we've got uh, these incredible fires, disaster, thinking, OK, that's over, and then we've had COVID. But that COVID's obviously far surpassed the fires thing because it's worldwide. The world's, uh, you know, just changed utterly. Um, and from young people, if it wasn't hard before that with just... Um, distributional wealth and opportunities seemed to be diminishing. The job market was getting less and less chance of getting a job. Now there's bugger all chance of getting a job. And you've got um, things like the Australian government still demanding that kids on the dole have to go and apply for 10 jobs a fortnight or whatever it is. And they go, <laughs> it has to be fraud. <laughs> because they can't do anything else. There's no jobs out there. Um, and if you're at uni and you're studying and and you're going, but what am I going to do when I get out? Like, I, it's already... When you're, like, I'm not sure whether this is going to make it into the cut because I don't feel like I'm well enough formed, informed to talk about it, but hope has got to be the biggest thing that you've got to try and engender. You've got to give a chance for people, feel like a kid coming through can look to his future and go, there's a life for me. Um, and at the moment, I feel like the future they're looking at is so bleak that they... Are, like, even in the early 70s when um, I was at school or late 60s, I thought it was bleak. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I did know that as soon as I looked for a job, I'd get one. happened like that. It was so easy to get a job now... It's impossible to get a job, mm -hmm. you know, um, unless you're really, really lucky. Or, and you do the uni thing, there's still no guarantee you're going to get a job. Mm. It's No, I, this will make the cut because I 100% yeah. believe that this is a huge part of why there's like, I, I, you know, I even sometimes I can feel lost. Um, but if, and I was thinking if I was 20 years younger than what I am now, yeah. I, I, I can't, you know. It's it's it is a bit mind-boggling on on the direction of everything. Uh, yeah. Well, and the other thing too, and this is sort of you know more self-exposing, is that because of all of my adventures with the films and stuff, I basically, you know, um, lost everything, and 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 just surviving, and and um, you know I won't go into the details, but we, you know we are living in Juck and we're lucky to be there, but um, I clean you know i do several jobs i clean um ambo stations i do design work i do writing i do um i help morris cole i'm basically his australian sales manager but um and that's both like that's a tumultuous joy working with morris he's a very old friend and 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 um I'm probably the worst sales manager in the history of the universe, but... Um, <laughs> Why do you say that? Oh, because um, I'm, I'm not an accountant, um, so that booksy side of things, I've got a guy looking after that. But And uh, you've, if you've got two creative types, which Morris is clearly that, and that's what I am, and our minds don't work linearly, so I'll be catching up with him today, and it's like we ha every couple of days we have to get together and go, OK, all of those done that board's done that board's done and sometimes you know like has happened just recently a board will come out with three fins instead of five and i'll go 
shit, how'd that happen? Because something's been written down wrong. And so it's systems management. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and orders management. And everybody wants to talk to Morris. But Morris doesn't want to talk to everybody because he's got his health issues and he's trying to make fantastic surfboards and he's doing that. And my, I suppose my job is just trying to see Morris through this this period you know like um you know it's as you know he's very ill um like you wouldn't know it to look at him but he's got real sort of like stuff going on that he's been very open about and mm. you can listen to his p- podcast to hear that stuff um and so i sort of see my job with mc is to um make this next couple of years as easy as it can be for him so and so I'm doing that and then I'm trying to write a book and um or a couple and paint and do photos like and I've got uh, a photo uh, exhibition coming up in September-ish I think awesome yeah up in Melbourne and so uh we well, you got to have it down here too no? Uh, no, it'll be in Melbourne. Fucking mm, clip that. <laughs> Just Melbourne. <laughs> um, and the and so the books are they uh, fiction, non-fiction? No, I'm, I'm, no non-fiction. Yeah. Um, I'd started writing a thing that was an existential thing about my living where I do and um, my relationship with the coast, but it's whether it ever gets published, I don't know. But I, I've started it, you know, basically. And in the beginning, like basically at the Big Bang, trying to get cosmological about how stuff starts and and but more about how the randomness of circumstance um, has created a place like Bell's, you know, geological circumstance. Um, and then talking about spirit of place, both, you know, from an Indigenous point of view, but also that evolved spirit of place that a guy that's grown up there or has formed a deep relationship with it and comparing the the depth of relationship of somebody who's come to love it as opposed to somebody who's say like anthony hume who's an indigenous guy who could say um and is a good mate great guy but he he can say i've got a connection of tens of thousands of years with this so the contemplation of that um is worth contemplating. So I got that. And then um, to the day-to-day thing about being out at Bells and and um, as has happened over the last seven or eight years, occasionally somebody dies out there because they've just fallen off their bull with a heart attack. And um, and they might be that might be their culmination of their 30-odd years of surfing out there. And um, the curiosity with that part of the book is that, um, was that... The last line I wrote was, and that's not a bad way to go, and two days later Sue was diagnosed. So suddenly I went into this other thing and my thought processes moved into a sort of, an, again, more about mortality. And so I'd been writing sort of consistently over the past year a, like a grief memoir that was at the behest of my counsellor, which was for me to kind of try and process it. But the writing of that, provoked me thinking that I should be doing this for somebody who's about to lose somebody because one of the things when you're in that process when you know someone's dying is that you don't know how you're going to feel at the other end I'm speaking specifically about 
um, a person that's about to use, lose their life's partner because that feeling is unlike anything. You know, you can lose your, your, your... I've lost a sister and I've lost both parents and I've lost, you know, other relatives, but losing your wife is just a whole other thing. And, and so I was wanting to write this so that, that those people would go, OK, just steal yourself, this is going to happen... But after that, this, this and this are going to happen that are going to mean that you should not feel guilty about it. There should not be a survivor guilt. You should be able to think that there will be a life after that. Um, um, and also to understand that the thread of grief is a thing that will always be with you but it diminishes in a certain way but you never, never want it to, to go away completely because that... that Pang that little thread, that sort of wave that'll hit you occasionally is your connection back to the person that you loved. And and so a lot of the writing is about that. And then that's evolved into this other thing um, that, um, you know, I'm sort of working to extend it so that, you know, if I can get it all stitched up and make sense of it, it might make a body or it might split it into two things, but it's an ongoing observation. There's a of, of sort of... I think what I'm going to try and do is make it about two years, you know, like from when Sue was sick to maybe the end of this year and see what my life journey was. But but I think if you, you know, by being open and talking about yourself and if you write it well enough, people can go into it and both get something out of the story but that back applies to them because whatever someone writes about themselves, if you can be open enough, um, applies to you. It's like good comedy. Yeah, and, and, and something and, you sorry to cut yeah. you off but something you wrote the other night that, you know I've only seen your shorthand writing um, in Instagram sort of stuff and Facebook uh, but it was something you wrote the other night that I was just like wow you know it smacked me between the eyes and I was uh, it was beautiful Mick you know, oh was that the thing about um, about uh, the Blackout Tuesday one was that the because oh, quite possibly, um, you know, it's just so. <laughs> but I remember, I just remember reading it, just going, "Fuck, man, he's just a beautiful writer." Like, you know, it takes a bit for me to be pulled in, yeah. Especially in that that medium, yeah, where you've got an attention span yeah. of a. Yeah, I'm getting, I'm getting a bit of like exhortation from people outside to write more, but I'm, I've got you. The way that sort of stuff happens is it just appears in your head, and you just put it down there. Um, and the trick is to be able to do that at an extended thing, you know, and not become self-conscious because as soon as you start writing in a self-conscious way, it becomes self-conscious writing. It's guarded. And uh, well, it's both self-conscious. But, well, I mean self-conscious in the sense that it's... Um, there's a good... You ever heard of Jamie Brizick? He's an American pro surfer that became a writer... And he's a very good writer and he's write, written a few quite well good books. He was a Fulbright scholar. And Jamie um, made a point about the fact that he's only just recently, after years and years of writing and going through the death of his wife, oddly enough, getting to a point in his writing where he can write with complete freedom. Um, and sort of it's, you know, when you get a wave... And um, you take off and you, and you pull out and you don't remember the wave. Yeah. That's <laughs> unselfconscious wave writing and it's being able to write like that where you're not a... You, you, you're, um, 
you know, you might write it. And sort you of get stream the, of consciousness. It's stream of consciousness but in a controlled way and then it, it comes out more heartfelt and clear and, um, and you can go back and edit it and tweak it, you know, um, but, but the, the essence of it needs to stay pure and that's kind of what I tried to do in those short-form things and there's days when I'll write a, I'll write a thing and I'll go, you know, you were thinking about it too much. Yeah, yeah. You know, but yeah. other times – and when it's good, it appears in your head. It's like when I, if I'm doing a picture, it, I've got it in my head and it's getting it out onto the, onto the paper, piece of paper or painting or something. Um, but um, – and likewise with writing, if it appears well. I struggle with some writing. I, I'm really interested in poetry, but that holds the structures of poetry – I, I, because um, you've got to get mastery of the medium and then and then be able to know the rules to break them and this, it, it's very it complex. Letters to a dead poet. Have you read that? No. All right, we'll talk no. about that after. But yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. But but you know, like it's writing's like I, I love doing it and but I like it because if I can do it well, I'm trying. I'm getting a communic, putting something across as a point of view. And I'm old enough and scraggy enough that I don't really give a rat's ass about what people think about me now too much um, because I feel that the things that I can offer are the fact that I've lived for a long time, longish time, and while my brain's still working, um, get it out there because you can. Mm-hmm. You know, I can do that, so I'm going to do it because I feel like it's going to make people see things a bit differently and again to that point about beauty you know I want to be able to sort of at the end of my time go I'm I made maybe people look at the world a bit more benignly or a bit or it was a better place than they thought it was I think you you are already doing that so I think you know just keep listening to your intuition (laughs) on that one (laughs) you know yeah so yeah Mick, I think we're going to say thank you so much. <laughs> no, I've enjoyed it. It's, um, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, Mick. Are we shaking hands? We're shaking hands. We're shaking hands. Good. Well, there you have it. There was my chat with Mick Sowry. I hope you enjoyed uh, listening to Mick as much as I enjoyed having him over and having him sit in front of me and and have him um, in my life, um, part of my life's tapestry. I'm very blessed. Uh, so, I mean, if that doesn't leave you wanting to be a better person, I'm not too sure what will. Uh, you know, like, as we know, as we all know, life is short. Um, and be kind. Be kind because we're all in this weird weird thing together and it's and it's difficult you know and we never know who's at what point of that difficult spectrum some people have come through it some people are entering it some people are in the middle of it and you just don't know what what someone's going through you know you might know someone but you don't know the rest of them and people they're connected to and what they're going through and look you know i'm it's it's always it's in in uh intellectually it's easy to say that and to live it is a different thing once again but um blah 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 i hope you are well out there in the universe and wherever you are thanks again for tuning in see you next time won't see ya
hear you. Speak to you next time. Adios.